Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In August 1787, the Constitutional Convention was considering the manuscript of the Committee of Detail Report. That was the second draft of the Constitution that was circulated. I know that because in the Constitution Center's American Treasures Gallery, we have the major drafts, uh, July 24th, August 3rd, September 12th, and September 17th. And that's as good an occasion as any to talk about the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. How did their unique constitutional visions influence the drafting and ratification of the Constitution during those crucial months between May and September 1787? And how should we interpret the Constitution today in the light of those debates? Joining us to explore this foundational constitutional question between the Anti-Federalists and Federalists are two of America's leading scholars of the Constitution, and I'm honored to welcome both of them. Jack Rakoff is the William Robertson Coe Professor of History and American Studies and Professor of Political Science and Law at Stanford. He is the author of six books, including Original Meanings, Politics, and Ideas in the Making of the Constitution, which won the Pulitzer Prize in History. Jack, it is wonderful to have you back with us. Uh, great to be here. And Michael Rappaport is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and Director of the Center for the Study of Constitutional Originalism at the University of San Diego School of Law. He previously worked in the Office of Legal Counsel in the U.S. Department of Justice and is the author of Originalism and the Good Constitution, co-written with John McGinnis. Mike, it is great to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Thanks. Jack, let's begin with the broad question. What were the major constitutional disagreements between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists? Well, Jeff, I, I think I would start with uh, two propositions that became clear only after the Constitution was first published on September 19, 1787. So the first would be that uh, the balance of power between the national government and the states, uh, as the framers of the Constitution uh, had proposed it, would inevitably uh, drift uh, sooner or later uh, to give the national government uh, deep and virtual preeminence over the entire structure of law. The, the word that was usually used at the time was that the Constitution would produce a consolidated national government. And the anti-federalists had a couple different meanings that they ascribed to consolidation. Sometimes they, they meant it would simply mean the total absorption of power by the national government. Sometimes they just meant it would, it would be a government that would act directly upon the citizens of the states and not have to work through uh, the state governments uh, as the kind of Congress had done under the Articles of Confederation. But I think the key finding here is that the anti-federalists imagined that sooner or later there would be a one-way drift of power uh, towards the national government. Uh, the the residual sources to protect the powers and rights of the states were few, and uh, for a variety of, for a variety of reasons, uh, the national government would consolidate all its power. The state governments would more or less wither away. So I think that was I think that was the one greatest objection that that resonated uh, throughout the whole period when the Constitution was being publicly debated. Uh, the second one, which interests scholars uh, in particular, uh, is tied to uh, a theory of republican government. And the basic argument here is that if you want to be a Republican, and I always like to say Republican lowercase r, uh, 
that what that meant to the 18th century was that you believed that republics were, by their nature, uh, supposed to be small, relatively confined, socially homogeneous entities. Uh, the, whole, the association between si- between uh, the smallness of size and the extent of the republic was one of the great conventions of 18th century political thinking. Uh, and the framers of the Constitution, I think, led first and foremost by, by James Madison, turned that proposition upside down. They argued that, in fact, the best way to preserve a republic would be not to try to preserve this kind of uh, limited extent and the kind of homogeneity of social interests, uh, that, in fact, there would be a great virtue. Uh, and a kind of great saving force in a large extended republic, which would embrace, in Madison's uh, language, a a multiplicity of interests, uh, a diversity that could be rooted in any of a number of factors. And that, therefore, the best way way to preserve republics was not to keep them small and homogeneous, it's to make them large and extensive. I think those are the two most important issues. Then, of course, there are any of a number of other propositions that come out, whether, whether the Constitution had adequately separated the different powers of government or what we sometimes call checks and balances. Uh, there's a big concern that the Senate would have emerged as the dominant institution of the government because, in fact, it would exercise all three forms of power. But I think the question of consolidation, the question of the optimal size of the republic, I put those at the top of my list. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for identifying the questions of consolidation and the size of the republic as uh, some of the central concerns. Mike, uh, do you have any central concerns that you'd like to add or would you like to amplify on the ones that Jack has identified? Uh, so I, I agree with Jack. Uh, those probably were the, the two most important ones, the balance of power between the, the nation and the states and the, the size of, of governments uh, in, in a republican system. Um, but there were, as Jack also notes, you know, many other issues that, that were, were important. So, so one important issue uh, is the Bill of Rights, right? So the Federalists, when, when they were proposing the Constitution and arguing for its ratification, were opposed to a Bill of Rights. And in fact, some of the time even made arguments it would be dangerous, it would be a bad thing. They also argued it was unnecessary. The anti-federalists did not. They, they, they felt in many of the states, in the state constitutions, there were bills of rights. This was a traditional protection of, of the, the liberty of the people, and they wanted it at the federal level. And the fact that it wasn't in the U.S. Constitution um, made them very suspicious. So, so that's one very important aspect, and we really owe the Bill of Rights to the fact that the anti-federalists um, – insisted upon it. In fact, we would never have gotten the ratification of the Constitution had the Federalists not agreed in the ratification conventions to add a Bill of Rights uh, in order to secure anti-Federalist votes for the ratification. So that's that's one very in, in, important issue. Um, there's another issue that, that, that Jack mentions, which is um, what kind of separation of powers do we want at the federal level. So there's um, the, the uh, anti-federalist view, which is sort of um, what, was what we might call, in a way, a sort of strict separation of powers. They wanted uh, the legislature to have um, the predominant power. They were do, doing all the legislating, and then the, the executive would simply enforce the laws and the judiciary would uh, adjudicate them. And um, the, the Federalists believe that when that system was operating, uh, 
it didn't actually have a significant amount of stability. And so what would happen, they felt at the state level, was that the states would, the legislatures would, would pass laws that would usurp powers for themselves. So one of the things that the Federalists argued for was to have an executive veto, something which did not exist in most of the states. And so the fact that we, we have an executive veto so that the president could protect himself um, from usurpations by the legislature is something that we, we very much owe to the, to the, um, to the Federalists, um, but something that the, the Anti-Federalists opposed. Um, another example of that, and again, Jack mentions this, is, is the role of the Senate. We're all familiar with the fact that the, the Senate uh, advice and consents to judicial nominations and to, to cabinet appointments, and that's thought to be a very significant check on the powers of the president. He just can't appoint cronies. Um, but the Anti-Federalists objected to this. They thought that the, this was not, you know, an appropriate role for the Senate, um, that they, this would be kind of part of the way in which the Senate and the president would get together and seize power um, from, from the, the, the rest of the government. So um, we had a, a, a number of different uh, disagreements. I could go on, but um, those are, are two that are worth mentioning. That is great. Thank you for adding to the questions of the uh, fear of consolidation and the size of government, the question of a bill of rights, and the question of what kind of separation of powers we want at the federal level. Let us begin, now that these questions have been so well identified, with the first, namely, would the new constitution lead to a consolidated government? We know that the anti-federalists were concerned about that because the anti-federalist papers say so. Anti-federalist uh, paper number nine is called a consolidated government is a tyranny and number 17 says federalist power will ultimately subvert state authority. Jack, there's much to say about uh, the debate here, but I want to begin by asking you about the Federalist and anti-federalist disagreement about sovereignty. James Wilson, we know from the his early draft of the Constitution, which you can find online at American Treasures and here at the Constitution Center, thought that we the people of the United States were sovereign and as a result, because we the whole people made the union, only we the whole people could change it. Um, anti-federalists like Patrick Henry disagreed and said the states were sovereign. I, I want to begin by asking you, what, what, what did James Madison think? We, we have Federalist 39, which talks about the proposed constitution is in strictness neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. Did Madison side either with Wilson or with Henry, or did he have some amalgamation of the two? And then tell us more about this fear about consolidation and their competing conceptions of sovereignty. Uh, well, Jeff, that's a great <laughs> question. And <laughs> one worries there's no short answer. To it. Uh, so let me start by saying I, I think Madison's position, uh, first off, is much closer to Wilson's than it would be to Patrick Henry's. I mean, Madison did not believe uh, that the states would remain the quintessential, quintessential perpetual sources uh, or expressions of sovereignty uh, within the American Republic. Uh, but going beyond that proposition, Federalist 39, which, which is a text I've spent a lot of time over the years, literally over the decades working with, uh, is a very complicated text. And basically what Madison does there when he turns to the question, is this more a federal or a national government, federal meaning state-based, or a national, meaning a nationalist-based government, 
Madison actually comes up with uh, fully five criteria to try to map what are the exact dimensions of the distribution of, let's say, the, uh, the overall contours of sovereignty within the proposed constitutional republic. And to start with that proposition, it's, it's important to know that historically, particularly you know, going back uh, at least to Jean Baudin in the late 16th century and Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, William Blackstone in the middle of the 18th century, sovereignty was thought of as being a final, absolute, uh, ultimate, unresistible power. Every government needed to have a sovereign. And uh, once you identified the, who, the, who, who or what the sovereign was, uh, you'd have to concede that the sovereign's power in the end was final, absolute, and in a certain sense, uncontrollable. The American system from the beginning made a mess of that. The states were there. They, they had a great deal of residual authority. A new national government was created. It was given a number of delegated powers, starting with you know, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, the enumerated powers uh, of Congress. Uh, there was a complicated set of relations between the different political jurisdictions, entities that made up the union, the people electing the House, the legislatures uh, electing the Senate, and then this kind of strange body of electors, in theory, getting ready to, to, to choose the presidency. So I think, in a sense, the, the way I usually try to explain it to my students as they will to your audience is basically the American framers or the, the founders essentially destroyed the received idea of sovereignty. They made, a kind of, they made a kind of, actually I published an article on this one, it's called Making a Hash of Sovereignty. They break it up, they divide it, they, they break it down in constituent parts. And that's what Madison went out to try to explain in a somewhat complicated way in Federalist 39, which is a text that's well worth reading, but you have to read it patiently. On the other hand, there is a big rhetorical debate going on uh, in 1787-88, so where does sovereignty now reside? And James Wilson, I think, has, has the great ingenuity to say, uh, we set, we've, we've, we're establishing a republic which rests upon an initial act of the sovereign people of the United States. Uh, we're going to preserve a unitary theory of sovereignty. We're going to say it resides in the people at large, you know, at least when they act constitutionally uh, by setting up governments. Uh, so, uh, and they are, in a sense, the ultimate source of authority. So you preserve that traditional notion of unity. You preserve a traditional notion there is some final source of authority. The problem is it doesn't work descriptively to, to, to say what is it the government actually does. So it kind of takes the traditional language of sovereignty and tries to preserve it, but it does so in a form that, by European standards, uh, makes almost no sense at all. Thank you so much for that answer. I, I have to confess that the debate over Federalist 39 was one that I had when I was a first-year law student with Akhil Amar, my admired teacher. And I said that the Federalists hadn't settled the question of which people was sovereign in Federalist 39. And it took Appomattox and the Civil War to settle it in favor of Wilson. Akhil said, no, it was national from the beginning. And I hear you saying that it was more complicated, that Wilson tried to fit it into the traditional theory that two forms of sovereignty were imperium in imperio or a state within a state, but it really didn't work in, in practice. So I'm, I'm relieved uh, to have some backup uh, many decades later. Um, Michael, do you agree with Jack's uh, description of the complicated debate over sovereignty? And then after a beat on Federalist 39, I want to ask you, weren't the anti-Federalists correct to worry about consolidation and didn't their fears come true? Yeah, so um, I agree with Jack that that Madison kind of takes a a middle view. He says it's a combination of um, 
of national sovereignty in certain ways and state sovereignty in other ways. I think this is really a contested issue right from the very beginning um, with some people of a nationalist sort um, uh, arguing for national sovereignty from, from the beginning and some people, you know, pretty quickly arguing for, for state sovereignty. Because one of the things that happens, and th this becomes absolutely clear by 1800, but, but we see a lot of it beforehand, is that, that people are arguing, the anti-federalists and, and their heirs in, in, in terms of the, the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans, um, argued that the Constitution was really a compact between the states. That, that if you looked at how the Constitution was put together and formed, uh, each state in, in its state convention had to ratify the Constitution uh, in order to become part of the system. So, so really what it was was each state getting together and uh, entering into a compact with the other states. In, under that way of thinking about things, the Constitution um, placed sovereignty or recognized sovereignty at the state level. Then you had um, the, the, the James Wilson people, and then that's followed on by, by the Federalist Party after the Constitution is ratified, arguing that, that sovereignty is at the, at the national level. And uh, Madison, as is often the case, has, sort of has this middle position and often also has a position that, that is not all that representative of what other people were thinking. So he's got this middle position, and, and I, I find it to be somewhat attractive, but I'm not sure, it, as I say, it was all that much representative. Um, the, the Supreme Court will, will fight about this for, for years and years. Um, a Marshall Court, uh, Chief Justice Marshall becomes um, the, the early Chief Justice, the third Chief Justice, and uh, he serves for, for over 30 years. And in many of the famous opinions that his court issued, the very first thing they talk about is uh, pretty much where does sovereignty lie? What kind of instrument is the Constitution? Is it a compact among the states? Marshall says, no, it is not. And uh, this, this gets repeated because it ends up being fought about. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it goes all the way to, to the Civil War uh, and the secession by, by the South. Um, your, your next question is, weren't the anti-federalists right to be worried about this? Um, I think if, if, if one looks further, especially if one looks further into... American history and, and past the Civil War and especially into the 20th century, the answer is absolutely. Um, so the, the original conception, and this is debated, but, but I think it's, it's pretty clear that, the, that, that, that even the, the Federalists uh, in the early years thought that national power would be limited. Um, debate about how, how limited it, it would be, but that, that the Constitution placed significant limits on it. By the time we get to the New Deal, uh, pretty much those limits are gone, and they're gone for, for uh, a couple of generations. One can argue about how limited the, uh, the Supreme Court has, has um, recognized the, the federal government is today, but, but for a long time, the federal government had largely unlimited authority, um, and this was exactly the type of thing that the, the anti-federalists were concerned about. In fact, uh, probably my favorite anti-federalist was Brutus. 
And he has several different papers where he, with sort of um, uh, great predictive powers, says what's going to happen here is the Supreme Court is going to look at this vague language, this unclear language in the Constitution. It's going to then recognize national power and give legitimacy to acts of usurpation by the Congress, and over time there's going to be a consolidated government. Well, it takes quite a while, but certainly by the New Deal, um, looks like Brutus uh, um, predicted things uh, 100%. Jack, uh, do you agree that the anti-federalists were correct and that the New Deal would fulfill the, their fears about consolidation? And what would the Federalists have thought about the New Deal? After all, they won and the anti-federalists lost. So was their conception of national power consistent with the one that would develop in the 20th century? You know, uh, Jeff and Mike, too, I, I have to say I, 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 I radically disagree with Mike's way of approaching this. Uh, and it, uh, and I do saw the basis of saying that, you know, you need to have some kind of historical explanation of why the national government grew as powerful as it did. The claim of the anti-federalists, uh, in effect, was that uh, the amount of power vested in the national government, you know, the enumerated powers of Article One. Section 8, you know, reinforced by the Necessary and Proper Clause, would, you know, ab initio from the very beginning uh, create this kind of headlong drift of power uh, towards the national government. Uh, and again, they would uh, effectively leave the states as empty jurisdictions. Now, that, you know, in a certain sense, they're saying the Constitution itself is the independent variable. The, the very nature of the Constitution is, is, is the force that's going to make this, not only make it possible, but actually make it happen. But if you're a political historian, as I am, and, and you know, and, and, and try to trace, let's say, the evolution of the American state, broadly defined, not just the states, but the whole enterprise of public power, and you try to ask, what was the respective authority of the national and state governments over, you know, two and a third centuries of our history since, since the Constitution was ratified, uh, I think the basic story is the states remain the preeminent uh, source or locus of governance uh, for the first century or so of American history. Uh, there's a big debate among historians as to just how powerful a national government we had, and uh, that's a, that debate's more complicated than, than something we need to resolve now. But the, the way I would answer this question is to say that what really matters was not the formal delegation of power per se – uh, or the Constitution acting as an in independent variable by itself, what really matters is what the American people broadly defined in all the different interests and constituencies in which they operate politically. Uh, at what at what point at what time did the idea of national action, let's say a general, uh, general you know, broadly defined approaches to national governance are the kind that were, in a certain sense, uh, best embodied in not only the New Deal, but also in the Great Society, uh, what made that possible? Those were political shifts. They weren't driven by the Constitution itself. They're driven by, by the actual course of politics. And I think Wilson and I think also to some extent Madison understood this from the beginning, that what would really determine the balance of power between the national government and the states, it was, it was not the text of the Constitution per se. It was the way in which all those different interests out there in, in, a, Republic, in a Republican society would try to manipulate government for their own purposes. For the first century of American history, you know, after the revolution, I think down to the late 19th century, the desire to use the states was, was still preeminent, except during, you know, certain moments. I mean, the Civil War decade, obviously, 
you know, Reconstruction would be a great exception here. Then around the turn of the 20th century and then increasingly with each passing decade, the imperatives and the attractions of national action uh, became all the more important. But so it's not – I don't see this as a process that's driven by the Constitution or one that really either Federalists or, or Anti-Federalists could have anticipated very well. It's really driven by, you know, the way in which, you know, ordinary citizens and the interest groups in which we uh, organize ourselves uh, try to make use of government. That's a powerful answer, and I, I um, Mike, I'm eager for your response. I hear Jack saying that far from anticipating that a Supreme Court would enforce original limitations on national power according to their original design, the Federalists at least anticipated that the ultimate balance between state and national power would be determined by politics and uh, therefore the 20th century developments are not inconsistent with that original design. Uh, what's your response? Well, you, you have to distinguish, um, I think, two questions here. So the, the, the first question is, um, what does the Constitution actually establish? Um, what are the, the limits in that Constitution? Then there's a second question, which is, are those limits stable? And do we have to worry about the possibility that they're going to be usurpations? And... Um, so one can believe, for example, that the, the U.S. Constitution placed significant limits on the, the federal government, but also recognize that government institutions can perhaps illegitimately not follow those original limits. The, 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 the revolutionaries um, who fought the, the English in 1776 um, believe that the, the limitations of the, glory, the, the glorious revolution in, in England in, of, of 1689 was supposed to establish, a, a, they thought, a, 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 um, a, a system of liberty. Um, and they felt that uh, there had been a decline from that, that those limitations had been undermined through corruption and other matters. So they were quite familiar with the idea that you could have a good system and the... And the, the the benefits of that system could be lost through uh, usurpation. So they were worried about usurpations. They were worried about those problems. But that doesn't mean that they thought that anything would go. Um, uh, so so uh, now one looks to, to what happened, let's say, with the New Deal. It's absolutely right that the, um, the country faces an emergency and um, political... Um, uh, desires and and uh, of different interest groups and and different parts of the government lead towards national powers being exercised. So so that's right. Now now the, the separate question is whether or not that was done in a constitutional way. Uh, one might argue, and I and I would, that the. The changes that the New Deal, um, at least some of the changes that the New Deal implemented, were things that required constitutional amendments. Unfortunately, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Dealers didn't want to go for constitutional amendments, and so they made changes through the Supreme Court, and the Supreme the Supreme Court approved the changes that that Congress enacted. So one can feel, ah, yes, there was a. Um, uh, a great desire to have national solutions, 
and at the same time bemoan the fact that constitutional amendments were not enacted uh, that would have actually changed the Constitution and made what the, the people wanted legal rather than to be of sort of questionable legitimacy. Great. Thank you for that fine exchange on the important question, is the New Deal constitutional? Uh, we the People listeners, you know we had that wonderful debate between Bruce Ackerman and Randy Barnett on that question a few weeks ago, um, and we know that we'll be returning to it in the months ahead. Let's turn now to the second big question uh, that uh, both of you identified as dividing the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, and that was the proper size of government. Jack, as you said, classical theory assumed you needed small republics where homogeneous interests could debate face-to-face and rule themselves, but Madison turned that on his head by saying that in an extended republic, factions would find it harder to organize, passion would dissipate, and reason could rule. Say, say more about both sides in that debate and then tell us whether or not you think Madison was right. <laughs> well, on almost every proposition, Jeff, I say Madison was right, having been a, a long-term Madisonian since the early 1970s. Uh, but, you know, putting that little quibble aside, you know, there, well, again, there's so many ways you can approach this question. I mean, one is to say that when 18th century authorities, including, let's say, you know, notably Montesquieu, wrote about the optimal size of republics. I think what they were basically envisioning were, you know, the city-states of ancient Greece or early modern Italy, you know, something like Athens in the 5th and 4th century BCE or, you know, Florence at the, you know, the, at, at the turn of the 16th century. And, you know, as some Americans observed, I think Hamilton made this point as well, that, uh, you know, if you look at the American, you know, the state-based republics, I mean, all the all the American states were organized as Republican governments. They were already much bigger, at least most of them, except, say, for Delaware and Rhode Island, uh, were, were much bigger than, than any of those classical or early modern republics. Uh, I think the bigger issue that uh, Madison was confronting here and, and the one that scholars continue to wrestle with is that an additional criterion of Republican government was that you needed to possess a virtuous people. And when you use the term virtue, which actually goes back to, in some ways goes back to Machiavelli's use of virtu, what you mean is not simply that, you know, we're polite and we help old people like myself uh, to cross the street and so on. You know, vert, you know I'm, I'm past 70, so I'm entitled to this assistance. You live in Stanford. I'm sure you're jogging across the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I prefer to swim. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, but, you know, but uh, in any case, you know, virtue has a specific political meaning. It means the capacity uh, as a citizen to subordinate private interest to public good. It means that when you enter the polity, you don't do so first and foremost to assert your self-interest. You do so because you feel a set of common obligations to the body politic and you're willing to subordinate your own interest uh, to act patriotically, to act with public spirit, to pursue those interests. That, and since that was, the idea of virtue remained one of the founding assumptions of the American Republic circa 1776 when the, when the first state constitutions were written. A decade later, when Madison sets out to, to reassess how well have these Republican governments operate, comes up with a number of criticisms. But one of the most fundamental is we can't rely upon virtue. We can't rely just on public spiritedness uh, to preserve our Republican forms of government. We've seen lots of uh, uh, occasions, uh, lots of decisions which where the decisions have been reached not on the basis of virtue, but out of what he calls opinion, passion, and interest, each of which in a certain sense is seen as a vice. And so Madison says, you know, we can't create 
you know, at least at a high level, the kind of virtue that Machiavelli admired and, and Montesquieu had discussed. We have to take people, we have to take Americans as they are. We have to assume they have this, this ordinary array of opinions, passions, and interests. What we want to do is to create a republic that will act more or less virtually, that will still respect private uh, rights and the public good, but it will do so by taking people as they are. And then we have to come up with a set of institutions that will not idealize or that will not be naive about the uh, the traits of our citizens. We'll take, we'll, we'll take Americans as they are. Then we have to set up institutions that will kind of mitigate and filter and, you know, kind of modify and deliberate on their preferences and try to come up with the right results. Uh, but we give up, in a certain sense, uh, we give up that classical notion of virtue uh, and we try to come up with a more modern notion of how is it that people in modern civil, civilized societies actually behave. Michael uh, addressed the question of the debate of the anti-federalists between large and small republics. Jack introduces this question of virtue and Machiavelli's hope that people would subjugate private interests for the public good. I can't help but ask whether both the federalists and anti-federalists were also influenced by Aristotle, uh, who, who certainly uh, was channeled by Machiavelli as well, but but his notion of uh, subjugate of eudaimonia, well-being, uh, subjugating one's passion so that one can serve the public good, and how did this notion of virtue play into the debate over the large and small republic? Well, um, I guess I I think that uh, I agree with Jack in that the the Anti-federalists were were looking with a sort of cl a somewhat classical theory of politics, which, as as he says, um, assumed a certain kind of virtue. And one way to think about it is that it was making very optimistic assumptions about how people would behave. And um, now, what's what's funny, and those were inconsistent with with how, in fact, um, America was actually operating. So now what's sort of interesting about that is that the, the anti-federalists were arguing for the traditional way of doing things. They had said, look, we had had these small republics for a long time. We, we had them since independence, but we had them at the colonies level for a long time and, and, and throughout history going back, Montesquieu and, and earlier, um, this was the way that republics had only operated. They had, they didn't have any experience with a large republic, right? They're the only republics that 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 existed were small ones. When when Rome grew too big, <laughs> it, it 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 turned into um, an, an empire, right? So um, so 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 that's on the one hand what what the the anti-federalists were concerned about. They they wanted to do traditional things. Um, then Madison and the Federalists come back and they say, well, look, things are not working out the way you are suggesting that they are. And what's um, one way to sort of understand that is prior to 1776, what placed limits on the colonies, what placed limits on these small republics from, from behaving badly was the English system and the English checks that, that were being imposed. Once 1776 happens and those states then 
uh, can operate on their own independently, they're not following these, these optimistic assumptions of, of the classical theory. And what they're starting to do looks a lot like, we see it described in, in Madison and other places, sort of you know, uh, corrupt interest group politics where people's rights and property are, are not safe and um, where there's all kind of machinations at work. So, so the Federalists say, ah, this traditional theory, this won't work in this, under the circumstances in, in the United States. And what we have to do is not assume that people will, will behave in this public-spirited way. We have to actually uh, recognize that they may not and design the system so that they'll be checking one another. So, so uh, we have to worry that the legislature is going to try to seize power and um, to, to protect against the legislature seizing power, we're going to give the president a veto. And so they're going to be able to stand up to, to one another. Um, and in any number of ways, the federalist system attempted to do this. This was a, a new system, an innovation that the anti-federalists were, were very... Uh, suspicious of, but on on the other hand, the Federalists could come back and say, "Well, look, these classical notions that you're describing are, are not actually working in the United States, and we've got to do something new." So that I think leads to our third concern, which was the debates between Federalists and Anti-Federalists about the separation of powers, and you've both described the fear of the Anti-Federalists that. Uh, the blending of powers would lead to tyranny. Um, Madison proposed an amendment that was not adopted, uh, taken from the Virginia Bill of Rights, that would have required that the legislature only exercise legislative powers, the executive executive and the judicial judicial. That didn't pass. Um, Jack, um, w w to tell us more about the anti-federalist fear that the blending of powers would lead to tyranny. And once again, to what degree do you think their fears have been vindicated or not? One of the things that struck me when, you know, 20 some and more years ago when I was doing my book Original Meanings, when I was working my way through those debates, was to realize that uh, somewhat curiously to a modern eye, the institution that the anti-federalists seemed to fear the most was the Senate. And the reason for that was that uh, by the standard theory which said there are three forms of power, legislative, executive, and judicial, and never the twain or the trio shall meet. By that standard theory, which again, we also associate first and foremost with Montesquieu, the Senate seemed to be the proficient, seemed to be the, the principal danger. Why was that the case? Well, it has all the legislative power, uh, that, uh, the House of Representatives has. Uh, it also shares the uh, what uh, many commentators regarded as uh, forms of executive power with the president, the advice and consent clauses, which cover appointments to major offices, you know, including justice, including federal judges and justices and cabinet members and ambassadors and the like, as well as the advice and consent clause uh, for the for the treaty power. So if you think of foreign policy making and if you think of appointments as being inherently executive powers, the Senate shares in those executive powers. And then third, because it will be the court of impeachments, uh, should the House of Representatives ever impeach an official, uh, it has a significant judicial power as well. What struck me as being curious is that uh, I think at the time, uh, many commentators, actually Federalists and Anti-Federalists alike, found it very difficult to imagine how much power the president 
would be able to exercise. I mean, conventional American thinking, you know, going certainly, you know, before the revolution uh, was dominated by the fear of executive power. And a lot of that goes back to the Corey's revolution uh, that, that, that Mike was referring to earlier. So that's, you know, that's kind of, that's an inbred element uh, in, uh, in American thinking. Um, after 1776, the Americans have to ask the question, what kind of executive power are we going to create? And I think the problem they faced was that there was no adequate model of what a national Republican executive would look like. Americans weren't about to accept, they weren't about to accept a king. We'd ruled monarchy out. Uh, they weren't great admirers of the kind of form of cabinet government or ministerial government that had emerged in Britain uh, in the 18th century after the Glorious Revolution. Uh, they didn't really have any strong positive examples, and they, they had no obvious way of knowing how much political power uh, would the presidency have. So I think one of the great puzzles, and some, some, some extent I think I have to leave your listeners with a puzzle more than a solution, uh, is that uh, you know the anti-federalists were obsessed with the wrong institution. They were more concerned about the Senate. They should have been more concerned about the president. But the problem with the presidency was it was difficult, I think really almost impossible, to know what executive power would look like until you actually had the institution up and running. And of course, the, the other aspect of this is so long as George Washington is going to be president, you're not going to worry about this. The question is, once you get into a post-Washington world, I mean, let's say he serves a term or two, uh, nobody's going to regard that as a problem. Once you get into a post-Washington world, then it becomes a serious issue. But then you have to see uh, how, uh, how will American national politics be organized. And that's why I think in certain ways, it's the emergence of the political party system, you know, beginning in the 1790s, and particularly with the election of 1796, that starts to illustrate the, the compli- complicated way in which the existence of organized political parties is going to interfere with and complicate the way in which this nominal separation of politics Powers, uh, was, supposed, you know, was supposed to act. Mike Jack has identified two anti-federalist fears of untrammeled Senate power and executive power. We can see that from the anti-federalist papers themselves that have at least four papers on the organization of powers of the Senate and also have uh, various fears concerning the executive department and the powers and dangerous potentials of his elected majesty. So tell us more about the competing fears of the Senate and the presidency, and then this really interesting question, were they wrong, do you think, as, as Jack says, to fear the Senate more than the presidency, or were they right to fear both? Yeah, so um, the it's very interesting with the, the, with the presidency. Um, so, so Jack's right that they, they don't want a king and they don't want cabinet government. Um, and, uh, but they do have a model here. They, they, one of the things that's not often appreciated enough is that they're not just sort of inventing the Constitution without any uh, prior experience because the states are going to have state constitutions that they start enacting in 1776 and continue to change in different states all the way up until 1787. And... Um, uh, the two models that they're going to use, I think, most significantly for the presidency is the, the governor of Massachusetts and the governor of New York, which were two stronger executives, stronger than the executives in the, in the other states. And, and that's going to kind of be the model that they're going to employ. So, so they're not just sort of inventing this out of, out of, out of, out of nothing. 
Um, the interesting thing is that the anti-federalists are worried about this, about this presidential power. And um, they want to use, as always, they want to use the traditional limitations that they thought worked well. And one of the traditional limitations um, is to have a council, which is not quite a cabinet the way we understand it, but it's, it's a group of people that the president has to kind of uh, consult with. Sometimes they would have to approve what, what he wanted to do. And the, the Federalists said, uh, we don't like the way councils operate, um, so we're going to not use them. And the anti-federalists were, some of them were quite upset about this. They thought that the only way to, to keep executive power limited was to have a council in this way. The federalists, as usual, turned this around. They said, no, we want a single president who will be responsible for, for what actions he takes. So if, if something goes wrong, he's got to say, I did it. He can't say, oh, I was forced to do it by my council. My council wouldn't do the thing that I really wanted to do. So um, once again, we see the, the sort of traditional arguments of the anti-federalists um, and then the, 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 the federalists saying, oh, the traditional system doesn't work. Now, this links in with the, with the idea of the Senate because um, once you got rid of the council, the council might be the traditional institution for advising and consenting to appointments. So once you got rid of a council, you had to have advice and consent be somewhere else, and so you gave that to the to the Senate. Um, and and of course the Senate was as well something of of the the um, sort of some analog to to the House of Lords in in England, and so it it it, it did other things that as as well. So it it um, so it. It, tr it tries impeachments. The, the House of Lords had significant judicial powers um, and the like. So um, which should we worry about more? Were, were they wrong to, to, to worry about the, the Senate more than the presidency? Probably, although some people today are very upset with the Senate. They don't like the fact, um, something that we haven't really talked about, um, the fact that we, we don't have, um, that, that every, every state has the same number of senators, and so it seems to give small states more power. So, so there are plenty of people today who are more upset with the Senate than they are with the presidency. Um, the presidency was a pretty limited power for, for most of the, of the 19th century. So it, it was only really beginning in the 20th century. And again, with some of the very significant changes we see during the New Deal especially, but, but throughout the 20th century generally, that we begin to see a presidency that's really quite different than, than the presidency of the 19th century. Uh, well, we have one other uh, large issue that we haven't talked about, and that's the disagreement about whether or not a Bill of Rights was necessary. Madison originally said that a Bill of Rights would be unnecessary or dangerous, unnecessary because the Constitution itself was a Bill of Rights by constraining congressional power, and dangerous because if you wrote down certain rights, people might assume that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. But in the face of anti-federalist objections and his need to win election uh, in Virginia, he changed his mind and came to support a Bill of Rights. Jack, uh, w w tell us more about why Madison changed his mind, uh, w w how the Federalists were uh, right or wrong about the need for a Bill of Rights, and, and who do you think had the better of the debate? Yeah. Uh, well, Jeffy, I, I think you and Mike uh, you know, approached this question with the natural bias of 
people trained in the law schools, where, there's, where there is such a great emphasis in teaching constitutional law today uh, on the whole role of the Bill of Rights. But that emphasis represents uh, what was actually a fairly dramatic turn in American jurisprudence. The Bill of Rights was pretty inconsequential for the first century and a half of its existence. There, there were not very many important bills of right, Bill of Rights cases. Uh, before you get really to the you know late 19-teens, 1920s, really to get to the 1930s. Uh, today, of course, the Bill of Rights dominates our idea of jurisprudence, and most Americans assume, uh, if they know anything at all about the Constitution, then in some ways that's, that's the part of it that matters most. Uh, you know, Madison's concern, if you go back to the 1780s, I, I think he was wrestling with a truly difficult question, which is if you want to have – uh, if you want to use the Constitution to, you know, to protect fundamental rights, what's the best way to do that? Americans in the 1770s, 1780s thought that rights came from multiple sources. Uh, and we don't have to believe what those were. Uh, I think Madison realized that instead of having a kind of variety of ways in which you could say, you know, rights are given by nature, they're given by God, they're given by habits of governance, they're provided by the common law, whatever – you know, Madison realized that uh, you know the best way to protect rights might be to lock them into the text of uh, of, of the Constitution, uh, and so I think when 1789 he he set himself the task of forcing his fellow members of Congress to pursue what he called the nauseous project of amendments, uh, he was concerned to do it in the right way. The flip side of this uh, is that the Anti-Federalists, when during the during the ratification debates proposed a number of amendments. The ones that mattered most to them, you know, were not the Bill of Rights. It had things to do with limiting uh, the taxing authority of Congress and a whole variety of other things that were related to powers. By the time some anti-federalists made their way to the, the first federal Congress in the spring of 1789, they were pretty indifferent to whether or not a Bill of Rights should exist. Madison remained unconvinced that it was really necessary or useful. He worried about the danger of enumerating rights. What happens if you leave some rights out because they remain politically controversial? He, he worries uh, to some extent about the problem of what happens when you textualize a statement of rights. You know, how do you how do you come up with an adequate definition of what a right is? And having a right is you know is a complicated concept. It's not easy to capture it fully uh, in a constitutional text. But he was convinced that if you wanted to get the Constitution to work. There was a group of well-meaning, if, if misguided, anti-federalists out there uh, who really felt that you know, a constitution of the Bill of Rights was defective. So to kind of get them to, I won't say to play along, but to get them to accept the legitimacy of this whole process of constitutional change, give them you know, some body of amendments that would, you know, uh, that would identify the fundamental rights with which, Amer with which Americans were most familiar, um, state those rights as precisely as you could. But having done that, uh, neither he nor anybody else actually felt the Bill of Rights would be an important part of the Constitution. It took a century and a half of our history for it to really attain that status. Mike, the last word is to you. How would you characterize the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists about the need for a Bill of Rights? And who do you think had the better of the debate? So I guess I disagree with, with Jack a little bit on this. Um, it seems to me that the Bill of Rights is a, an incredibly important accomplishment of the Anti-Federalists. Um, and so what we can really see, rather than to, to think about well, who was right, the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists about these matters, uh, am, am, am I a Madison man, am I a Patrick Henry man, on, 
on these matters is to see that they're, they're, they both contributed to um, our, our American government and, and the Constitution. And one of the great contributions of the Anti-Federalists is, is to introduce the Bill of Rights. Now, did we need the Bill of Rights? The, the Federalists said we, we didn't need them. And the Anti-Federalists said, oh, yes, we do, um, in part because of the sort of idea of a belt and suspenders approach to things. Um, when when the, the Alien and Sedition Acts come up in, in, in uh, the, the late 1790s, um, the Sedition Act is, is a restriction on, on freedom of speech. And one of the arguments made against the Sedition Act is Congress does not have the power to enact it. So that's an argument you could make even without the Bill of Rights. But another argument was, uh, oh, the Sedition Act is going to violate the free speech rights of, of people in, in, the, in the country. So you have a belt and suspenders approach to these matters. Um, now, Jack says, oh, the, the Bill of Rights was not very important for the 19th century. We don't have a lot of cases about it. And that's true. Um, but it's also true that the federal government didn't do all that much during the 19th century by and large. And so that's a big part of the reason why we don't have very many cases about it. Um, in the 20th century, the, the, some portions of the Bill of Rights get applied to the states and states are doing lots of things, and then eventually the federal government is going to grow, and the federal government is going to do lots of things. So that's why, in part, we get a much more important Bill of Rights in the 20th century. It's not because the principles weren't important. It was because they initially didn't apply to the states, and the federal government wasn't doing that much. Um, ultimately, I, I think that the um, this was one of their great contributions, the, the, the Anti-Federalists. Um, the, the, another important contribution that they make sort of is before they even become anti-federalists at the, at the constitutional convention. They're arguing the, some of them are arguing for the importance of states and we get great compromises that are enacted and put into the constitution. So, um, the Constitution really reflects the, the, the contributions and, and relative wisdom of both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, but no more than in the area of the Bill of Rights. Thank you so much, Jack Rakoff and Michael Rappaport, for an engaging, lively, and extremely illuminating discussion of the crucial debate between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Jack, Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Homework of the week. Friends, in the fall, Jack Rakoff is publishing with Colleen Sheehan the Cambridge Companion to the Federalist Papers, so make sure to get it as soon as it's out. And also check out Michael Rappaport's Originalism and the Good Constitution. Also, if you like, read Federalist 39 and decide for yourself whether Madison is endorsing national sovereignty, state sovereignty, or some combination of the two. And let me know what you think. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And remember, dear We the People friends, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. 
we rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the love of learning of each of you who is listening to this podcast now and educating yourself about the Constitution. So please signal that engagement by joining the National Constitution Center. You can become a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. I need finally to give a shout out and a thanks to Timothy L. Garten from Ames, Iowa, who suggested this week's podcast, The Debate Between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. We the People listeners, if you have ideas for topics you'd like us to take up, please let me know. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.